0: If you were with us last week, uh, you know that we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And in those verses, we see Paul rehearsing or, or repeating, going over, doing a replay of his time with the Thessalonians. The brief few weeks he had there in which he planted the church. And he wants to remind them of the manner of his ministry, the motivation of his ministry, and in fact, the mission of his ministry. And you may remember that I said that when Paul is going over the details of his own ministry, it's not just that he's wanting people to recall how he acted. He always does so with an eye towards imitation. He wants People to imitate him in the same way that he is imitating Christ. The imitation of Christ is a core concept in Christianity. So for example, 1 Peter 5.3 repeatedly, or, or I should say emphatically, tells us that the elders should be an example to the flock. So Paul's example to the church provides the example that we are then to emulate to each other. And so, in keeping with that theme, or that basic concept, we're going to pause for two weeks from our study of 1 Thessalonians. Why? Well, uh, you may recall that earlier this year at our congregational meeting, uh, we announced that during the month of April, we are going to be doing officer nominations. Uh, The church has changed a lot. It's grown a lot in the past 14 months or so, and the time has come that we need to add fresh blood, so to speak, to the officer ranks of our church. Uh, So we, we are going to offer to the congregation the opportunity to nominate men to the offices of elder and deacon. And so, what the session requested is that I spend the last two weeks of March, this week and next week, talking about setting the context for church officers and that nomination season, which will be taking place in just a few short weeks. And so, be on the lookout if you're at home. Uh, we've come up with an officer nomination form, it will be in the bulletin if. And when we're able to meet corporately, physically again. And there will be an online version connected to our church website for members to submit these forms uh, containing their nominations in the event we can't meet together physically. Uh, But the, the Bible speaks about church officers at length throughout its pages. Uh, for example, Ephesians 4, 11 to 14 describes for us the basic purpose of officers, to mature the saints for the work of ministry, okay? And of course, we have uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which goes over the qualifications for officers. But I want to, in today's message, with the passage we're going to look at, I want to sort of back up a bit, And I want to answer the question about why you should even care. Why does it even really matter who our officers are? Why does it really matter that we have leadership at all? And so we're going to look today at Paul's words to the Ephesian elders uh, that he gives in Acts chapter 20. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, the Church in Ephesus is a very significant church in the pages of the Bible. Not only is it the longest tenured ministry that Paul has, he's there about three years, uh, but he addresses the elders here. There's an epistle directed to the church in Ephesus, Later, he sends Timothy back to minister to the church in Ephesus. And then, of course, in Revelation 2, it's the first church that's addressed. So Ephesus, because of its strategic location on the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey, it is the hub of all of Paul's ministry to that area. And so it's a very significant church. At the end of his third missionary journey, Paul is, Paul is set. He is going back to Jerusalem. Okay? He's, he recognizes things are coming to a head. He, even in our passage today, he's going to say that he's constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. Okay? So he's, he's on a mission. And so he stops on his way back to Jerusalem. He stops in the town of Miletus, which is about 50 miles from Ephesus. And from there, he sends for the Ephesian elders. So on foot, if you do the math, that's a good four to five day walk to get back to Paul. So four to five days to get up to the elders, however long it took for them to get assembled. And then they come down to see Paul. And so Paul's words here are vital for our understanding of why church leadership matters. So everything I've said this context up to this point, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Acts, verse 17, as we read through the rest of the chapter. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that by the Spirit, Paul spoke it, and that by the Spirit, Luke wrote it. We ask, Lord, that we would turn our hearts and our minds to what it tells us, and that we would submit ourselves to it and be shaped by it. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be with us in all things, even as you have promised. For it's your sake we ask this. Amen. All right, as we said in our protracted introduction, here Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders uh, because he wants to send them some parting words since he knows he will never again see their their face. This whole speech, this whole pep talk, this whole whole, uh, counseling session, whatever you want to call it, it was Paul to some beloved friends that he had made for three years as he ministered in that city. And this whole discussion is, 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 is enveloped in the gravity of the message from verse 22 to 25 that he's on his way to Jerusalem, he expects trouble, but he's not quite sure what shape that'll take. But one thing he is sure of, he will never again see their face. When we know that we will never again see someone's face, the the tone and the words take on an especially significant and poignant uh, nature. We know, for example, that when Paul writes his final words to Timothy in 2 Timothy, they, they are especially powerful as he sees that even now he's being poured out as a drink offering and that he has finished his race. And so he wants to motivate and inspire and encourage the the Ephesian elders to take seriously the task before them. Paul cares significantly for his people, for Christians, for the church. And Paul says something here uh, that that, that strikes me, and and I hope that it strikes you. Uh, Paul, in verse 24 says, Uh, He says that he does not account his life as precious to me nor as of any value except or save that I finish the ministry that Christ has given to me. That is incredible. He's willing to face death. He's willing to face uncertainty. He's willing to face all of the trouble that comes from being marked as an apostle so much that his life itself is meaningless to himself, except that he finished the ministry given to him by Jesus. Do you and I have that same type of Christ-focused dedication? We're in a day, we are in a moment in our history where the entire world is heaving And people are desperately taking measures to save their physical life. The the lie that this world has bought into is that this life is all that matters. This life is all there is. And so there are people fighting for the silliest things, taking the most drastic measures to save a physical life. They are consumed by fear. And Paul sets forth an example that has marked Christians throughout history. Paul totally bought into the narrative that Jesus Christ is real. The resurrection of the dead is real. The inheritance that we have is real. And so Christian. We stand at a unique opportunity. We are at a unique moment in history with a unique opportunity to testify to the world that this life may be important, but it is not ultimate. There is one, and there is a something that can so grip our hearts. That everything in this world pales in comparison and we can live free. Have you ever noticed how, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples, the followers of Christ, they are technically free, but they are in bondage to fear. They are in an upper room, hiding, quaking in their boots lest they get discovered. Fast forward to the end of Acts and you see a man in chains. But that man is free. And the gospel is being trumpeted. Brothers and sisters, listen to me closely. The kingdom that Paul preaches is one in which the values of this world are turned on their head. The kingdom of God, of which we are citizens by faith in Christ, is one in which we are told that if we seek to save our lives, we will what? Lose it. And if we lose our lives for Christ's sake and the gospels, we will what? Gain it. Keep it. So Paul is free. And this freedom from self-interest, from self-preservation, this this motivates him and enables him to give himself freely and wholly to the work of the Lord. This is not some unique apostolic gift. This is full-orbed Christianity modeled out. That's what that is. This is the goal. This is what we should be aiming for. And so Paul has given himself wholly to his mission because of the worthiness of the one who assigned it and the importance of the mission itself. We see here that Paul makes reference to the church as a flock. And when he uses that term, that agrarian term, that, that, that agricultural hus, animal husbandry term, he's employing a time honored, thoroughly biblical notion, a thoroughly biblical metaphor or image for how God's people relate to the Lord. Going back, for example, one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23. How does it begin? The Lord is my shepherd. Okay. The idea of us being the Lord's flock is biblical. And we see powerfully in Ezekiel 34 where the Lord pronounces judgment against the shepherds of the flock because the shepherds, that is the ruler's both political and religious, the rulers of the people have abused, neglected, and exploited the flock. And so the Lord in Ezekiel 34 says that he himself would come and shepherd the flock. Which is why in John 10, when Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the good shepherd. There's that direct tie-in to what the Lord had said hundreds of years before through the prophet Ezekiel. And so building on and extrapolating out from the Lord Jesus himself declaring to be the good shepherd, that same imagery then is applied to subsequent leaders in the church. We are to be shepherds of the flock, or dare I say, under-shepherds of the flock. That is, one of my seminary professors made the point that we really shouldn't call ourselves, in churches that have multiple staff, we shouldn't call ourselves senior pastors because there's only one senior pastor, and that's Jesus. Every single one of us is an under-shepherd. Every single one. But Paul here is driven by an intensity and he wants his people to understand that the, that the metaphor being used is to show that there is continuity and tie-in between their situation there and the situation between God and his people going back all the way. We share that same story. We are in that family lineage. And Paul here stresses to the Ephesian elders that they need to take very seriously their role and their responsibility for at least three reasons. First, the church is visible. Second, the church is valuable. And third, the church is vulnerable. In our day in which church membership is down, and people flitter about and, uh, and and hop from one church to another, or 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 find their entire spiritual sustenance uh, through 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 online uh, only or TV preachers uh, with, with no connection to an organic physical body. Paul here provides a powerful corrective. You see, we are not ethereal beings. We are not disembodied spirits. We are real, tangible people with real, tangible concerns and needs. And so Paul physically showed up, even as the Lord physically showed up. And Paul did real physical labor, he engaged in real physical teaching. He engaged in real physical support. Why? Because we're talking about a real physical, that is, visible church. When Jesus saves people, he brings them into flocks, little mini underflocks in whatever geographic area they are. And it's the realness of our existence that compels us to have a realness to our assembly. And in a real body of people, there are real concerns that have to be addressed. And so it takes real elders and deacons, officers, to process and handle these matters. When Jesus says I will build my church he promises that not only will people get saved but that people will be assembled for the purposes of discipleship and fellowship, encouragement and support. And Paul knows this which is why he says to guard that flock. And then he says that we're valuable. In verse 28 He says very carefully to pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice that he puts the first onus of responsibility on them to manage and watch out for, to guard themselves. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, you are precious to the Lord. And it's not just your spirit that's precious to the Lord. You, with all of your warts and blemishes, you with all of your neediness, you with all of your concerns, you with all of your smiles and frowns, whatever, you as a real total person are precious to the Lord. And He purchased you. He redeemed you from destruction. With his own blood. Underscoring the intense value that you have to God. In light of this incredible value then. Anyone who has been entrusted to the care of those people. Had better take care. Because they're messing with someone else's beloved. It's precisely why. The shepherds of Israel were so judged because they were abusing and neglecting and exploiting the very ones they were called to watch out for. Third, they're vulnerable. We are vulnerable. Paul knows that after his departure, threats will come from without and within. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Okay, it's a gruesome, savage image of a wild beast coming in and destroying things. But then there's this sinister, slippery, ominous word. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. How do you think that felt to the Ephesian elders to be told that from among their own selves would arise men speaking twisted things? The church, Christian, Christians, you singular, you plural, are. Vulnerable. And so the Lord sets watchmen, overseers, to guard the flock from within and without, to make sure that nothing hinders your enjoyment of the salvation that has been accomplished and purchased for you, to ensure that nothing hinders you in your growth in godliness. So if you want to know why it's important to take church leadership seriously, it's because a failure of leadership opens the doors to all manner of spiritual and real, physical neglect, abuse, and exploitation. A lack of leadership is destined to lead to a diminished church, spiritual life. It is significant because you are valuable. We are vulnerable because we are visible. And so, members of Spring Cypress Presbyterian Church, in a few weeks, you're going to have an opportunity to select for yourselves some men for consideration to the offices of elder and deacon. Take it seriously. Do not think that you should put men into position of office as an attaboy for being here a long time. Do not think that you should put someone forward for office who's marginally involved, hoping to entice them to greater involvement by handing them the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. No. Your church, your soul is on the line. Choose your leaders carefully. Take very seriously the admonition of Paul here and ensure that when you select a man, you are selecting a man who is qualified and competent, and committed. Next week, as we continue our brief divergent trail, we're going to look at the duties, responsibilities, and qualifications of officers because I want each of you to go into this process eyes wide open, And hearts that are filled with a fervor to ensure that our church continues down the right path as directed by competent leaders. Let's pray.